All right, um, so we're continuing on with our series on uh, building belief and the right reading of Scripture. And so uh, I forgot to add one of the Scriptures this week, so I'm sorry about that. Uh, but uh, it's okay, it's pretty brief, and so uh, we'll be good. You'll be good uh, reading it along with me. We've got a lot of things exciting going on, as was announced. Um, one of the things that I'll just make a plug for, because we're always asking for money around here, why not? It's a great way to give and to be a part of things really specifically. In about a month, we'll take a special contribution for our summer. We drop off quite a bit in membership, uh, but all of our uh, operating expenses are still the same. And so we'll try to raise $8,000 again. We've done it the last two years. You guys have been always generous, but thinking, be thinking about that uh, after Spring Heat and all the other things that you can give to. So, yes, great. We're going to continue on in our series. We are going to take a little bit of a turn. We're kind of done with the early church fathers. Again, if you have any more interest uh, in studying that time period or learning more about that, there are a variety of resources. Uh, talk to anyone who grew up in an Orthodox or Catholic church, and they may also be able to provide you with more resources on how to study the church fathers. Um, we really just sort of quickly dispatched of that time period, just like we're going to do with this next time period. And so... The goal is not to study history so much uh, as is to discover how Christian history has informed our reading of the scripture, okay? So we're going to move on to the reformers today, and uh, I'm going to talk about culture and the Bible, something that I talk about a lot uh, already, and I apologize for that. It's a sociologist in me, but I'm going to try my best to uh, not give you a whole lot of information that you already have, okay? Plus, I'm going to talk a lot along the lines of a sermon series that we did, I think also this last summer, which was on apologetics. And so if you're interested on anything that I mention regarding apologetics or the defense of faith, you can go back on our website and, uh, and look through uh, that sermon series, which I believe was in July, and that will give you a lot of information that could be helpful for thinking through that topic, okay? Uh, plus, I think we have a recorded audio, too, of sort of a mini class that I taught uh, for Focus maybe a year or two years ago on different cultural uh, perspectives on how Christians interact with the society around them, okay? And if you're uh, aware of Niebuhr or any of the studies in uh, culture, things like that, and you're interested in going more into that, I teach an intern class every year uh, for the apprentices, uh, and it's on this exact same, uh, same topic, okay? But if you're interested, great, go and read more about that, and if you need help finding it, certainly we'll help you find it. All right, so culture in the Bible. Next week, we're going to talk about church in the Bible, uh, truly important themes uh, during the Reformation. I will remind you that one of the main reasons we're doing this series in the first place is because we're 500 years away from the Reformation, and it seemed like why not celebrate that by going back and looking through Christian history in a way that uh, a lot of us have never looked through, don't really see as th that applicable to our own lives, and yet almost all of the traditions and practices we have around reading Scripture has come from or been heavily influenced by one of these time periods. And as much as some of us don't really like to go back and understand history, it's in our understanding of history that we can understand why it is that we're in the place that we're in now and, uh, and not have to reinvent the wheel in all of the same mistakes and conversations that have already happened, but be able to use that information uh, and build on top of that uh, in accordance with our own cultural ideas and values and things like that. So hopefully, 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 uh, this has been helpful for you, uh, the least of which is that you're actually reading the scripture and reading it in a way that, uh, uh, you know, preparing for these sermons. So how many of you did read the scripture for this week? Okay, the numbers are going precipitously down. Uh, now, I will remind you again that if you do not read the scriptures, you will get very little, really to nothing, out of these sermons. Because you're going to hear me talk about some stuff and quickly forget it if your beliefs are not undergirded or uh, built on top of a biblical foundation, all right? So you're going to forget everything. It'll be funny, and it'll be, you know, I'll give you some cute, terrible illustrations, and you'll be entertained for the day. But in terms of the Spirit writing anything on your heart that is going to be long-lasting, or that will challenge some of the commonly held beliefs that you already have, you will have made no headway. So let me remind you again that it would be far more beneficial for you to skip church and skip these sermons, okay, and actually just read the text than it would be for you to come and hear me speak on it as a secondary or worse tertiary source on it, 
So I just want to remind you of that. Because those of you who've gotten lazy over the last month and aren't reading these scriptures that are, you have fully prepared. They were there for you at the beginning of the semester. It's all written out for you. The one this week wasn't even that long. Uh, you ought to do that. Now, I have all of these, you know, more conscientious faces raising their hand, probably asking me where it is. What do I do? So let's hear it. What do you got? Yeah, it's just on the Facebook page, and it's pinned to the top, okay? So come on, people. You don't even have to scroll down past all of the other terrible memes that I've uh, created, not created, stolen. Uh, you just have to find it there at the top of our Facebook page. Yes, Austin. Yeah, gosh, is there a way you could write like a wiki how on that uh, for us? Or do like an instructional video for those people who really don't know? Yeah, all right, maybe to a wrap or something so that, you know, it'll, it'll stick. Mom, you had a quizzical face. You got it, good, yeah, right. Because I'm sure that's why you guys haven't been reading it is because you couldn't find it. Yeah, that's, welcome to teaching 101. Yeah, I didn't do the homework, I, I just couldn't find it anywhere. Oh, yeah, all right. Well, it's like 10 different places on uh, eCampus or uh, whatever that new Canvas thing we're using. Thank you. Goodbye. All right. So, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, here we go. Remember, the T's are all together, right? So it'll make it easier for you to find. Uh, the T's are all together. Yeah. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead... And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. When you're thinking about it, when you're not. At church, when you're not. When you're at work, when you're not at work. When you're around spiritual people, having a spiritual conversation, or not. Be prepared. How do you be prepared? You actually know what it says. And you question the idea of, do I believe this or not? talked a lot about that in this series, is as you're reading scripture, it's very easy to pick up on one or two words and think, that sounds pretty cool, I've heard that before. But are you really reading it in context and asking yourselves, do I believe this? And one of the things we'll talk about today is a great test for do you believe this is do you see it playing out in any aspects of your life? Because we have a terrible disease as a society, and that is that we love to believe things without acting on them. I forgot my Wormwood quote uh, for this morning from Screwtape Letters, so I'll just butcher it. But he basically says, if you can get someone to feel and not act, then as time goes on, they begin to both act less and feel less. And I love that, because it is so true. It's the do as I say, not as I do type mentality, okay? So that's a great uh, starting place for uh, is this, uh, am I prepared? In, out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience. So on the one hand, you have these things that aren't always uh, very easy or fun, like correcting and rebuking, but it's not free for all, you know, correct every word that someone says, rebuke every bad idea that they've had. It's great patience and careful instruction. Uh, I love to correct and rebuke, but I'm not even remotely patient and don't give careful instruction. I'm the kind of guy that just likes to sort of tell you what's wrong and then sort of let you go and just let's figure out how, how you do it. I've learned that a lot, particularly from being married. Apparently, I don't give good instructions. All right. Well, I'm working on it, maybe a little bit at time by time. Uh, that's not a phrase. So, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, someone who just passes on the good news from one person to the next, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. Uh, okay, so I, I, the passage that I forgot to include here was 1 Corinthians 9, 19. And I, I'm so sorry about that because the whole point of it was that you would contrast these two. Because that sounds a lot like there's this time coming when people are going to not listen to truth or authority and only want to listen to what they already believe. That is not him speaking of a future time. That is him speaking of the normal condition of all humans in any society and in any time period. Okay, and so for those you know, conservative type-minded folks who love to look at the old days and think, man, if people used to 
you know, pay attention to the Bible. Well, there's some piece of that that's true, but this happens in any and every society and in any and every organization. People begin to stop listening to authorities and begin to just sort of listen to what they want to believe already. We talked about this a lot last week with confirmation bias in that sort of scientific uh, uh, conversation that we had last time. All right, so this seems negative. It seems bad. Society, uh, you know, is no good. We've got to fall back on the Bible, blah, blah, blah. But I want to do this 1 Corinthians passage 9.19 because I think it presents sort of the other end of this tension that I'll talk about that many of us know as the in the world of the world tension. All right, so 1 Corinthians 9.19 through 23. All righty. Though I am free and belong to no man, I intention, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew, all right, which is a strange statement considering he was a Jew. To win the Jews, to those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having uh, the law. To the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Now, if you read those two passages right next to each other, there's some problems here. Because on one hand, what Paul is saying is that people are just going to gather around them, people like them, to tell them what they want to hear. And if you're not reading this very carefully, you might not recognize this, but Paul then is saying he becomes like people so as they can hear something similar to what they're expecting to hear. Now, that's easily, in my mind, a contradiction if we're not careful, trying to get to the bottom of what it is he's saying. And many of of us in our day-to-day lives, particularly with folks who are uh, not at least overtly Christian, we have this tension, this in the world of the world, what does that mean, how do we deal with it? It very much is a tension, okay? And uh, it's, it's kind of like in... I don't, this is probably not the best example, but have you ever just sat and listened to somebody who has sort of a terrible plan for their life or about to do something pretty stupid, and no matter how much you try, you can't communicate to them or can't get the idea to sink in that the path that they're heading in is just a bad path. And there's a million reasons why. You, it could be because you're not clarifying yourself. It could be because you're doing it in the wrong way. You're angry. You're timid. It could just be because you're not an authority figure or the person doesn't really take authority uh, other than from in, you know, deep within their hearts or whatever else. But I find myself a lot of times with talking to people who are not Christian, but also people who are, that I'm just wanting to beat my head trying to explain in some way, this isn't going to work out. This is a bad idea and it falling on deaf ears. All right? And I think this is, this is part of, or at least... Um, Somewhat kind of the idea of in the world, of the world. How do we communicate these ideas uh, being in uh, in the world but not of the world? So I'm going to have two points here, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to kind of get through this in a way that's clear. Belief needs authority. Okay? This idea of blind faith or faith that uh, is something we just sense or have an intuition on does not work in the Bible. Faith has to, or belief has to have some kind of authority. If you think back to Jesus and what people were amazed at, if you remember Luke uh, uh, 6.32, I think, or 4.32, I can't remember, I don't have it written down. I think it's 4.32, let's go with 4.32. If you absolutely read 6.32 too, it's just like an added bonus, okay? Um, They were amazed at his teaching. Do you remember the, the next part of that line? He taught with authority... It's actually even better than that in terms of the original Greek words. His words, yeah, had authority. So the the reason I think there's a difference in that is because someone can speak with authority like I do sometimes in my loud voice and, you know, the words seem to kind of make sense. But just because they speak with authority doesn't mean the words are actually authoritative. Many of us pay attention to authoritative sounding voices. In fact, that goes back to the thing that we talked about last week to bore you even more, um, the idea of confirmation bias, that if someone presents their argument well, we tend to believe them more, uh, and we tend to uh, think that's what they actually believe, but that's a whole other topic. Alrighty? So, amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. 
So I want to talk about this for a moment. The idea of cultural authority. Most of us probably, if, if, particularly if we haven't taken a class on culture or ever really paid much attention to cultural narratives or things like that, might not realize the degree to which culture is an authority in our lives. Because cultural authority is assumed and never analyzed. For most of us, we just assume that the stories our culture tells us are more or less right. Okay? Every culture does this. There's actually got to be some design of God in culture that allows that to happen because it's just so prevalent. It's the whole idea of culture. is cultural authority. The authority behind culture is assumed. We assume it's correct and right and never really analyze it. All right? It's a really important idea here. One of my favorites among young millennials is the idea of tolerance. The, the, just the, the term tolerance is this assumed cultural authority. Yes, everybody should be tolerant. Duh, of course, that's great. There's so many problems with that. Not the least of which is when I'm talking about tolerance with most of my young students, most of them are actually not tolerant at all. They're just ignorant. And their ignorant is a, ignorance is a, or tolerance is a guise for ignorance. Meaning they're tolerant so far as you don't explain much to them about beliefs that differ from theirs. But as soon as you do, they're not tolerant anymore. Particularly not tolerant of intolerant people. Well, you, you can't do that. That's not real tolerance. Tolerance uh, uh, as a guise for ignorance is not tolerance at all. It's better to be not tolerant and at least informed of other people's viewpoints in my mind than be tolerant and completely ignorant of them. Uh, and so there's a real problem with, uh, with that assumed cultural authority that many of us have of tolerance. I'm going to come back to this idea in a moment, but I, I pick up on this a whole lot. And tolerance is certainly a wonderful idea and a very important idea, but not if, it, uh, if it's just hiding being ignorant of what other people actually believe, being unwilling to talk about those things in a way uh, that, uh, that aren't helpful. I got some metal roofing this week from, from my parents' shed that I'm building, okay? And I walk in, and it, this guy's so grumpy. He's the worst. If you get on the Google reviews, they have like 40 reviews, and they're like one and a half stars. Um, he, yeah, first thing he says out of his mouth. Well, guess we're not going to be able to learn how to make bump stocks on YouTube anymore. Guess I'm not going to be able to find any personal ads on uh, Craigslist anymore. I'm like, what do you do with that? It's like 7 o'clock in the morning, and this guy is ready to talk about conservative politics with me. And I'm like, I don't even know what to do. I just don't know what to do, okay? How would you respond, you know? I'm like, ready to fight? I'm ready to be, ask questions? I'm like, I got 15 minutes to get this medal. This is the only place in about a 50-mile radius I can get it. I probably ought not piss this guy off, Okay. So I'm sure I just head nodded and kind of walked out the door. What do you do? All right? Um, but I just, you know, you see that in both liberals and conservatives, this just cultural authority. And guys, culture works on a variety of levels. It, it can be a church authority that we all just sort of accept information or a doctrine. Leslie's going to talk about that a whole lot next week because she came out of a very strict, very fundamentalist background uh, and moved away from that. And so she's going to share a lot about how the church can have its own culture and how that authority is ultimately assumed and not analyzed. We don't pay much attention to the things that we say uh, we believe. They need no veri verification, right? No, they just don't need verification. Or if they do need verification, it's the verification, uh, the sort that's what we talked about last time, you can pretty much find any old website like verification.org or .net and find out what you want to believe. You talk to people who believe what you want to believe. You ignore people on Facebook who say something different than you. You only have conversations in a way that's so strong that, like that Metal Mark guy that nobody can you know, deny you uh, or have an open conversation with you. They need no verifications. They say what their itching ears want to hear. And that's a real problem we have with any and every cultural narrative. Itching ears want to hear. I was thinking, I, I listened to this ad, this most recent conservative ad about um, Cruz is making fun of Beto for his name. You guys hear that? They like redo this entire Texas song and you know, basically say that he's not a real Texas man. And he changed his name to Beto uh, to um, basically be cool. And in, in response, uh, Beto O'Rourke basically posts this photo 
of when he was like two years old and he had a shirt on that said Beto. I mean, you know, and, and I'm thinking, okay, so he's verified that that's not like a name change he did later on to be cool. But in my mind, I'm thinking anybody who hears this song is going to love the song because they want to verify what they already believe. And at the end of the day, guys, there's a lot weirder names than Beto. I mean, Beto is a weird name. But have you guys seen this forest beetle? How can we nominate a forest beetle to be a judge? I mean, he might be pretty diverse in his opinions, but he's a beetle. How do they even communicate? There's some weird names out there, all right? And if you're going to attack a name, I'm sorry, I just had to put that in somewhere. Because I, everywhere I drive in Denton County, I see forest beetle, and I'm wondering, what is that? Okay? Whether it's Fuzzy Newquist or Kinky Friedman, or I'm starting to think people just run with cool names, okay? And hope that you millennials will be like, that's a cool name. I think I'm going to go with that. Beto sounds dope. I'm going to go with that name, I think. Uh, but whole side point. Need no verification, okay? So that's a real problem. One of the things that's really cool about the Reformation age is that there began in what we'll call humanism today, but among Christians, humanism sounds very bad because it's often related to secular humanism. There began a, a real large movement in the West to uh, go against all of these traditions and cultural narratives. And that produced some really amazing things Okay, like the Reformation, and it uh, proved uh, to be really disastrous in some ways, just like a lot of movements do. But those of you who've heard of humanism, I mean, humanism is is a really long kind of time period, and it's really uh, overlapped some with the Renaissance and the Reformation, and even some at the end with the Enlightenment. But the idea of humanism was pretty simple at the time. It was just the idea that rather than looking at all these authority figures like the church and priests, maybe authority ought to lie in the individual and in the individual community. And we can go back to humans having some sort of realities that intertwine them. Now, that's not just positive realities. That could be vices. That could be virtues. But we no longer have to look to the sort of spiritual realm or spiritual world as an authority on all of these uh, humanly matters. All right? That's humanism in like two sentences. I'm sorry if that's not enough, but go study it uh, if you want to. A lot of people rail on Machiavelli uh, as being this sort of like really pessimistic, nihilistic philosopher. But you know, one of the things that was really interesting about Machiavelli is he wrote a lot about vices and virtues. And his perspective, which is not one I would take, is that there are so many vices in communal organizations that you better just sort of figure it out for yourself and like only care about your own self-interest unless you want the community or the church or the society to overtake your values. And so he's very cutthroat in that way. But during this time period, guys, a lot of people rediscovered the Bible's emphasis on these timeless human realities. Vices, virtues, whatever. It was the reformers who, as a result of humanism, decided to go back and reinterpret a lot of the ways that the church had communicated cultural authority to them. And it led to what we're in now, although you'd have to kind of follow the... uh, um, the patchwork here of of different ideas and philosophies, but humanism was really, really, really important as a movement on the early reformers. It's what allowed them to go back to and think through the scripture in ways that are really human and no longer just, uh, you know, um, uh, authority from on high. So, as you fast forward a whole lot, from humanism, then you go on to the Renaissance, which we'll talk about a little bit, where people actually discover one of these wonderful works of art and poetry and original languages from Greek society and Hebrew society and all these other societies. You get to sort of the you know, rationalist or modern time period where we begin to want to have a whole new society and everything's going to be beautiful and perfect and we can construct our societies perfectly. And then in the 60s, you know, we decide that's probably not such a great idea. Look at all the kinds of problems that that caused. And now we're in this sort of current time period of postmodernism. Well, the point I want to make in all of that is humanism, okay? Humanism, the Reformation, Renaissance, and Enlightenment, guys, is no different than the whole modern, postmodern time period we're in today. And why is this important? It's important because all throughout Christian history, we see Christian scholars, Christian lay people trying their best to make sense of the good of their culture and trying not to go in excess 
of just following along with it, but to go back to the Bible to inform them of how to think about this new and arising and different cultural perspective on the world. And one of the biggest problems with us is we do not interpret modernism and postmodernism often through the lens of the Bible. We, like many Christians of the humanist and traditional uh, Renaissance time period, just sort of take it all in or reject it all and don't do much in the way of trying to make meaningful meaningful applications of what we can in our culture. Uh, and I think that's a real problem because if we're going to be the type of generation that reforms our generation, and if you read the Second Kings passage that we'll end in, the kind of quintessential Reformation story where Josiah finds the book of the law and is just amazed at how much is in it that would inform all of this cultural stuff that they had been doing and then just completely removes it and starts over. Which for each generation, we've got to be willing and able to do. And that does not happen, you know, in a moment or in a quick movement. It happens through a lot of individual Christian people deciding to rediscover the Bible in their time period. Particularly when the cultural wars are at their height, like they have been in our society for the last 50 or 75 years. So, I think the real question that that leads us to is how do we speak biblical authority in these movements that seem to us to flat out reject it? What do we do with that? How do we speak biblical authority into these movements, like modernism and postmodernism, in uh, a society that seems to flatly reject it? Now, I will say one thing, and that's that humanism and the Renaissance still very much thought of the, Bib the Bible as an important document. And one of the things that uh, Ian Proven points out in his book, The uh, Right Reading of Scripture, the Reformation, the right reading of scripture, is that we are in a state where the biblical narrative has been totally eclipsed by other worldviews. It just has been. Totally eclipsed. Reformers in the humanist and renaissance time periods at least could go back to the Bible for some, uh, if nothing else, information on vices and how to at least be a kind of a decent person. But for us in our generation, the, bib the biblical narrative has been totally eclipsed. It's gone. It's just gone from the conversation and it's gone from our uh, societal philosophies. And so we are presented with even more of a challenge in some ways for us to even like the Bible, for us to even appreciate anything in it, not, uh, not, not to mention actually apply it to our lives. And so if we're not careful, we more than maybe any other generation can in our lifetime, even within the church, see a total just disregard for the scripture and for belief. And that is not okay and will never be okay. And, and yet it's the life that many of us live, as N.T. Wright calls practical atheists. We've got to come back uh, to the idea that belief has to have authority. And if your beliefs are influenced and propped up by cultural authority, when those words pass away, whether in eternity or in the next generation, which is like more, more likely... You've got nothing left to stand on. But as Christians, we believe the biblical guidance we've gotten from God is timeless and will always be evident and always be applicable to whatever cultural time period we're in. And if we're not doing it due diligence to actually try to bring it into our current understanding, then it's really on us and nobody else. It's on us. And we've got to be really, really, really uh, afraid, I think, of this. And not in sort of like a, oh, I'm terrified, you know, the world is going to end, it's getting worse. More like a, oh, okay, well, all of those things that I believe are like, you know, sandy, shallow uh, foundation. And they're gone tomorrow if they get challenged. But that the authority that comes with the scripture is the very authority of God. So, I'm going to leave you with this question because we're going to, we're going to take this a lot, and I know this is somewhat boring, um, but we'll prep it a little bit for our kind of next couple sermons, which are going to be talking about this uh, more at length and more practically. So how do we speak biblical authority in these movements that flat out reject it? It's one thing for them to assume at least that the Bible is kind of a, you know, literary work or an important place where it can discuss how to be a virtuous person. But when our current time period flat out rejects uh, the biblical narrative, how can we possibly use it uh, to speak into uh, to our society? 
All right? And I don't mean this at the public level. I really do mean this at the sort of private and individual level. Two uh, answers that I'll give you with this, and they're not incredibly practical, but I'm going to go for it because I hate people always say you can't ask questions and then not answer them. So, uh, Francis Schaeffer, there's actually a really wonderful, it's long, but you can kind of pick and choose. Uh, apologetics uh, uh, discussion that comes out of Regent, and it's um, led by Alistair McGrath, who's a pretty popular writer, theologian in the uh, uh, European church. He wrote the textbook of theology that many of the apprentices uh, went through. Glad maybe that they don't have to do that anymore. Um, but this apologetics um, and defense of faith, uh, and actually it's not even called apologetic, it's called the beauty of creation and using stories in apologetics. It's a really wonderfully written, put together uh, discussion seminar on how to really talk to postmodern people about faith. And uh, anyway, he, he talks a lot about Francis Schaeffer and uses Francis Schaeffer, and I, I like how Francis Schaeffer talks about that. He says that number one, and I think this can apply both to talking to other people and within our own sort of uh, way of thinking and reasoning, is we have to, you have to undermine, okay, or at least disassemble Destruct and destroy sounds a little too crazy, but this symbol is like, you know, just one piece at a time. The authority structure of people's belief systems. Uh, one of the real things I think we're most uncomfortable in talking with people in, who really are, have bought into some of the cultural authorities is beginning to undermine some of the cultural uh, sh uh, authority structure uh, that they have, meaning that why do you believe the thing that you believe? That's one of the most important questions I have in my tool belt is very, 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 very kindly, patiently, and carefully asking someone, well, where did you get that idea or where did you get that thought? Now, in modernism, this is easy because you can point to the lack of a verifiable authority. If someone believes that the, flat is, uh, the earth is flat, <laughs> you can try your best uh, to show them better pictures than a globe and water or flat shoes, uh, things like that. Um, but with a postmodern mindset, this becomes very, very difficult, right? Because who is the authority in postmodern thinking? The individual, my own experience, my stuff. And so dis uh, disassembling someone's own experience can be very, very difficult, uh, right? Yeah, you didn't actually do that. Don't worry about it. It was a dream, it was a figment of your imagination. No, this was my experience. And so often what you have to do uh, is uh, sort of uh, give the other perspective on the experience, uh, which we talked about a lot in our apologetics class. So we have to undermine authority structure. Guys, we do the same with ourselves. When we come across something in the scripture that seems foreign or weird or whatever else, we have to ask ourselves, why is it weird or foreign and what's going on here? We have to undermine the authority structure uh, of our belief system, meaning we have to figure out where did I get this belief? And is it authoritative? Or does it ultimately come from my experience, my tradition, my parents, my neighbor who had some ideas on things? And this is very difficult for postmodern folks to do. Why is it difficult? Well, it's pretty simple. One, we have a lot of information and aren't good at using it. And two, we're not that concerned with authority. We just really aren't. We're totally cool with being the authority force in our own lives. When we get in my class to the topic of religion, I just want to beat my brain out trying to talk to students about religion. Because one of the things I, I very quickly point out to them is that, you know, they believe that religion sort of, you know, uh, comes out of your own heart. You make your own ideas based on, uh, you know, what you think to be good and real. And then my next question always to them is, well, why do all of you believe that? Is that really a natural way of thinking about the world that just really does come from your individual experience? Or have you been told by society that religion basically comes from your own heart? Because if the authority is not actually you, then you in your love of uh, or hatred of authority just gave your authority up to some larger cultural idea. That's not good. You don't want that. But then the conversation just derails from there. Uh, because they find uh, that they have the fight for that belief uh, because it's an assumed cultural uh, authoritative uh, way of thinking. And then most importantly, uh, even uh, you know, in the process of undermining authority structure, we've got to replace with the firmer foundation. And for many of us, the replacement with the firmer foundation as Christians is going to be biblical belief system. That is why when you guys are not reading scripture and asking yourself, do I believe this? You are doing nothing to replace 
the foundation that you have and the cultural narratives you've been told. You're just not. You're not doing the work. And if you don't do the work, you're not going to hear God's voice, which is always a freeing voice to teach you how to live in the way that he designed you to live. It's as simple as that. They're going to continue to follow all of these other paths that we've been given and got from questionable sources and be okay with that. One of the best passages in all of Scripture is that my people have forsaken me and dug their own cisterns. Cisterns that never had any water in them, but there they are, trying to get water for the day. That is what we do when we buy into our cultural narratives and the cultural authority that's around us. Now, God will use cultural authority certainly to teach, him, to teach us about him, but only if we're recognizing it from the firm foundation of the Bible and recognizing those things as, uh, as being from him. Nor will we know how to interact with our culture much for good uh, if we can't, uh, you know, part and parcel what it is that, uh, that's good about our cultural beliefs and that really aligns with what God uh, has discovered and, or what God has taught us how to discover will be out. But sometimes a firmer foundation, listen, I'm not ex- expecting that if I'm going to, like I did over the weekend, speak to one of my favorite bartenders, I don't know if I want to say that, uh, about her newest relationship. She's bisexual, uh, and uh, she's now dating a guy, and so this has been kind of interesting. She hasn't had a, a boyfriend in a while. She's had a girlfriend, and uh, they had the kind of the conversation which she brought up, which was great, of, hey, are we kind of dating exclusively? And she was like, well, you know, I'm not seeing anybody else. And the guy's like, well, I'm not either. I mean, you're welcome to uh, if you want. This is a very normal conversation for millennials, guys, uh, even in their 30s, which this couple is. And, you know, what do you do with that? I'm going to give them a firm foundation. Where do I even start, right? Sometimes a firmer foundation is just moving in the direction towards uh, something that's really uh, a biblical ethic. And for me in that situation was like I really uh, affirmed, hey, having that exclusive conversation early on is pretty, a pretty good idea and not just waiting for months to go by and then one of you gets hurt because your expectations aren't right. And we had this conversation that was just about, you know, yeah, you know, that happens a lot, and it really, you know, ruins relationships, having an exclusive, you know, conversation, how to have that, what that looks like. You know, the bigger conversation for them was what to call each other. He prefers to be called her partner, not her boyfriend, because he doesn't understand gender roles. Guys, listen, this is the day and age we're in. And some of you older people who are like, what, what just happened there? What was that conversation? That is millennials dating, all right? That's the best way I can d- define that. And so then I'm in the same conversation talking about my partner, who's my business partner, and I have to clarify, hey, he is my business partner, I am married, I don't also have a partner, which probably wouldn't have thought twice about, honestly. Um, yeah, this is, this is the day and age we live in, right? You guys know, you're, you're out there. So belief needs some authority, and in, in some ways postmodernism allows us to not have to go verify authority from like, well, statistics show that, <laughs> of people who move in together before marriage end up in divorce. We're like, all right, great. Well, there's still 30%. I'm probably not 30%. That's a postmodern mindset, okay? It's not a modern mindset. You know, my individual experience is going to be different because I'm an individual and I'm different. Well, good luck using those kinds of statistics. You know, that that the day and age has passed uh, for that to be helpful. But to be able to confirm things from my experience with their experience and kind of meet together, you can become an authority in people's lives. And that's, there's, there's a huge benefit for that. And of course, there's some scariness involved with that. But our relationships ultimately do become uh, people's major authorities. And so in some ways, we have an amazing ability today, more than maybe ever before, uh, at least as we've been alive, to be authority figures in other people's lives. They're not going out and looking at, you know, uh, I, my, one of my dogs was howling this morning with the uh, firefighter siren. He's been doing it for a long time. But then one of my other dogs, Rudy, Cohen's the one that does it, started doing it too. And this is only the second time I've heard him. And so immediately, of course, I have to get on my phone to look, you know, uh, why does it, the dogs howl? And, you know, there's a million sources. And, you know, I found that, that evolution is just like the panacea of all responses. You can just basically say, oh, it's evolutionary. People are like, yeah, mm-hmm, Definitely. <laughs> what does that even mean, you know? And of course, all these sites were like pet-friendly and Pets Plus. And so I finally find a, found a veterinarian that explained it from the whole frequency tones and all this different thing and how, you know, dogs uh, hear a different frequency and blah, blah, blah. That's not that interesting, is it? Although I will make one more interesting comment, which has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Kind of it does. And that is that some countries 
in uh, particularly Eastern Europe have been using mosquitoes, which is what they're called, but they're actually just these noise boxes, okay, that, that uh, put out this annoying, obnoxious sound that only kids under 18 can hear. Apparently, we have this problem with our cochlea that as we grow older, we hear less and less frequencies of sounds. And so there's about 3,000 of these boxes been sold, and there's people on both sides of this. And so the whole point is to keep kids from, you know, I was going to say laundering, but that's not the right word. Loitering, thank you. Don't think it would really, I mean, I guess it does keep them from laundering in multiple ways too. Uh, loitering by putting these boxes up, man. How interesting, you know? Science is cool, but that probably, you know, was last week's illustration. I just, you know, learned it too late. Then I started thinking, well, what if we put those up on other churches and that way we could finally get teens in here, you know? <laughs> teens come in, they're like, wow, it sounds good in here. I think we could, uh, we could probably do this. Or maybe there's like the opposite where there's like a pleasing sound that only teens can hear. We put that box out here, you know? I don't know. I'm just always thinking about how to actually get teens. Uh, uh, that's a weird way of phrasing that. <laughs> Teen ministry. Uh, all right, moving on. I will say one more thing, and that is that sometimes as we speak to people, here's my way of using this as an illustration, uh, we are speaking to them in a frequency that is absolutely obnoxious to them. And one of the things that I've, I've kind of come to understand is in, in dealing with individuals, every individual has their own culture. It's really kind of absurd. So that you're not dealing with family levels or society or city levels anymore. You're dealing with one person that has built up an amalgamation of random ideas and then built their own culture around themselves. And so trying to infiltrate that culture is sometimes very difficult. But what I do know is that if you can at least try and understand it, no, uh, there's never been a day and age maybe that this whole idea of becoming Jews to the Jews and, you know, weak to the weak has become uh, more diverse and more nuanced to, to meaning whole, you know, very, very specific individual people which should make our individual and outreach ministry even less, I think, public in some ways and much more private. That's my, uh, my belief. I don't know if necessarily I can back that up. All right, I got to move to the second point because I think I've been going a long time. This is what happens when I'm on my phone. Actually, I think the last time I had my phone, I went short, so I'm just an extreme person. So belief needs authority, guys. You've got to, in your own beliefs, figure out where the authority comes from, and in other people's belief systems, where is their authority? And as you can, can start disassembling that, and making sense of that, you can begin to replace it with a much firmer foundation. This is ultimately what we do with counseling, social work, all those things, is we're trying to get them out of the authority figures, thinking in terms of the authorities that are around them, and to try to give them much healthier authorities to pay attention to. And that's a, 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 you know, a point in our maturation and, and our growth as people, but certainly as disciples. So, Number two, and I think this definitely speaks to, to those of us who are, you know, kind of in the postmodern mindset, authoritative belief needs practical results. You know, while we have a, a huge ability to have these beliefs wrapped up in our minds that we'll never act on, I think the stuff that really gets people thinking is the stuff that we can provide and prove some kind of practical results. Something in your life, something in your way of living that's really evident that your belief system is, it can be attributed to, or, or that the practical results are attributed back to your belief system. This is why we talked about a couple weeks ago, you know, telling you know, young people not to have sex because it's not good for them. Oh, good luck with that. But if you can explain how the practical results in your own life have been, you know, uh, in terms of uh, where you're at with dating, whether you're married, whatever, it makes a huge difference in terms of being able to explain these things. Now, am I saying all beliefs have some immediate practical like advantage? No, this isn't a self-help book, and there's a whole nother path when you go to any of these extremes that can be very bad, okay? Don't get me wrong here. Let's even think as a side point about humanism. Humanism was really wonderful until we realized that the only humans that we seemed to really care about were the white ones. And then in the 19th century, all of a sudden, humanism was about creating a good society, and a good society meant no racial minorities and no people who had cognitive illnesses. There's a downside to all of these movements. Hello? Yes, of course. Talked about that sufficiently, I think, la uh, last time. But we definitely do have, uh, I think, an ability to speak practically in people's lives. This is why sermons, in my mind, that aren't, at some point, series that don't get practical and talking about how to live and how to to, to, okay, grace is great, and I really like it, 
but what does it look like for me to live a life of grace with that coworker who has never deserved a piece of grace in their entire life, okay? Um, that's much more difficult, and we've got to kind of get there. My passage here that I just love to go back to over and over again is Matthew eleven seventeen, And he's, he's actually, Jesus is here responding to these cultural differences that he's experiencing in his ministry. Some people want a, a, a dance. Some people want a dirge, whatever that is. I think that's a dance. Maybe that's a funeral. I don't know. Um, but he's, he's kind of got both ends. And he's saying, you know, here, you, I can't please you. You want both. You know, you're, you're double-minded, okay? And he says, but you know what? Wisdom is proved right by our actions. I love that line. It's so important to me, especially as someone who likes to lock up in my brain a lot of knowledge and wisdom and not do anything about it, okay? Wisdom is proved right by her actions. Does biblical belief actually make you more tolerant? 1 Corinthians 9 and 19 through 23. And again, not the cultural narrative of tolerance, which is about just letting people be, but truly being able to live around other people who are vastly different than you. Because that's so much of the, the difficulty in the Christian bubble is truly being around people who are rough, as we would explain it, or indifferent. But Paul certainly had it in his mindset that that was the goal of his Christ living. Jesus, how did he get past that? He just spent his time. He was very, very tolerant of people who were very different than him. And the most ironic thing about this day of tolerance and day and age of tolerance is it seems like we've actually become much less tolerant of other people. And you can blame it on individualism. You can blame it on that tendency to only spend time with people who are like us. I don't know. But Christians absolutely should be tolerant. Tolerant in the way that's very accepting of people who are very different from us. And not just accepting with the intention of, well, let's just not talk about it, but addressing those things that are both important to me and important to them, which certainly is going to bring up faith. Because there's no way to be ignorant when you're becoming like them, right? I mean, you know, when Paul's becoming like a Jewish person, becoming like a weak person. He's certainly not ignorant of them, otherwise there's no way he could become like them unless he was dressing up as them. So tolerance always puts us around people who are very different than us. And, and it's the ignorance that makes us pretend like uh, we really understand. How many of us have Christian testimonies of that one person who was that atheist who came to our group, who we didn't actually become much like, but we sure did like to pretend like we entered into their world for a moment. That's ignorance, not tolerance. So authoritative belief needs practical results. It needs to show up. And it needs to be clear that those things have ultimately changed how it is we see people and what we do. People are very tired, very, very tired in our cultural narrative of Christians who love Jesus but don't look anything like him. It's just not going to work. Not anymore. Okay? And, uh, and, and we, we've got to figure that out. And we become like Jesus not by following the cultural narrative of being good people, but by actually living like Jesus, who had an amazing ability to be in but not of the world, to be around the very people who would hate him on any other day, but somehow to gain their hearts and trust. That was just amazing. And if we're honest, we're, we're really one or the other most days, and it's very hard to, uh, to hit this tension. Another kind of side thought here, and then I want to wrap up, is, you know, we, we, in modernism, one of the things that a lot of Christian scholars have done is they've used the best in literary movements to rediscover some of the truths of Scripture. It's about using those cultural paths and trends to be able to uh, understand the, the Scripture better. And certainly, uh, uh, scholarship on uh, the Bible has been divided uh, in a lot of ways. It has driven some people away from the church just as much as uh, probably it's brought people in. Um, but these are all, I think, good things. Well, how do we use postmodernism in, uh, in a way uh, that, uh, that in, in really helps us understand what God is doing? Well, I mentioned this all through the series that we did over the summer, and so I'm not going to go much into it. But I definitely want to say that it's, a lot of it has to do with diverse storytelling. One of the biggest challenges, guys, we have in bringing the biblical authority to our generation is being able to tell stories from Scripture that fit into our cultural narrative that fit into how our culture views the world. We don't live in a day and age where people take the, cult, the, the biblical scriptures and think, that was cute. We've got to translate them creatively. 
We just have to. And I don't mean this in terms of we all ought to become Hollywood directors or writers or things like that. I mean, we've got to be able to take things from the Bible, translate them to people in ways that keep the ethic, keep the story, keep the impact of it. And a lot of us don't even know enough of the passages, much less are able to translate any of them. Yeah. Well, Colin and I actually had a Facebook conversation about this this week. Um, and I think really the question you're asking is the question he asked about the difference between literalistic and literal reading of Scripture. And the words are absolutely arbitrary. We talked about that. The etymology of them is not going to be helpful going back and looking at the root words. The connotation and that weird way that scholars use the two words are helpful. And you're just going to have to memorize them. I don't know how else to tell you because it's not self-evident. Uh, a literal reading of Scripture is a reading into the deepest meaning of what the scripture has for us, the plain meaning, which is always the deepest meaning, okay? Plain meaning, recognizing that they're using literary types, all kinds of literary types, okay? Uh, and that's actually one of the biggest advantages of the Renaissance was that we were able to go back and study Greek and, Ro and Hebrew thought, and people actually loved it, the printing press, all of that stuff. They actually liked learning Hebrew and Greek. Some of us are like, the thought of it just is insane. Uh, we we want to do that. I'm actually on board with that too. I don't really want to do that. But they were able to appreciate all the literary methods they were using. Literalistic is a wooden interpretation. It is a, I'm going to read this and take the most shallow, most easy explanation for what this is saying without digging much deeper into it. And literalism, in, in a really weird way, isn't literal at all. It's taking my own cultural viewpoint, my own traditional understanding, and reading into Scripture those things. And so literal and literalistic are very different. And literal requires some work because it requires us understanding the literary types being used. When they, in that passage, use those three figures, there's huge symbolism to that in their day and age. They just pick random three people. So how do we faithfully translate that message into a way where the three major characters are just as shocking, and it's not just shock appeal, because that's not what they're going for, but it's significant. Well, that's going to take some work. You don't just do that. But that also requires that we actually understand the story <laughs> and remember it more than like Sunday school version, you know, where we're like, Samaritan guy, he's nice. Uh, but we, that, that takes this kind of academic and... Uh, uh, study and an ability to also just sort of reflect and do devotional reading, which I forgot to tell you guys, devotional reading, we're going to start that uh, in two weeks, our devotional class, uh, which will be a four-week class on devotional reading of the scripture. Leslie and I are going to lead that. Hopefully that makes sense to you, but I think I feel like it's like three o'clock. I don't know what time it is, but it feels like three o'clock to me. It's three o'clock, yeah. You're like, it is, so you better wrap this up. All right. So, how can we translate the biblical stories to our language or at least use cultural stories to teach biblical truths? So I think that can be helpful too. And I'm not talking about bad Christian movies that take, you know, the thing I've, I've never understood about that, guys, is that's exactly what the porn industry does, okay? They take strange movie titles and then make them pornographic. That's what Christian movies do. They take popular sayings and then just Christianize them. I'm like, where did they learn that from? One or the other has learned it from them, and I'm not for sure which one, but I don't want to be on that uh, one learning from the other, okay? But one of the things we studied in our, uh, and you might ask why I know that, okay, fine. Remember, all of us have been to Seattle, and, well, not all of us, but many of us have been to Seattle and Bellingham, and do you guys remember in Seattle, that huge movie theater that has, no? Yeah, me neither, so. Um, <laughs> So for you Sikkim folks who go there this year, when you rock around Seattle, you're going to be like, oh, that's that huge porn movie theater that, uh, that he was mentioning that has all of the really funny versions of, uh, one of my favorites was Star Wars. Uh, that's all I'll say. I'm not going to tell you the next of it. Uh, some of you are very uncomfortable, aren't you? Okay, sorry. <laughs> Pretty normal conversation around my place, so. Um, so. We've got to take these cultural stories and teach biblical truths. And, you know, in our worship um, uh, discussion we did a couple weeks ago, one of the things that we talked about was how the, one of the most revelatory things for the early Reformation church. Remember, this is the church that's breaking up from high church, from the liturgy, is all they did 
was seeing metric psalms, or where they would take the psalms and they would apply them to, to, to just various cultural tunes that they had. And this was crazy to them to be able to do, to not have to sing these sort of approved, well-written psalm, uh, songs or hymns, but to be able to just sing psalms. Now, again, most of their tunes were Christian tunes, so I joked with our class that that would be weird if we were trying to sing it to, like, I don't know, Beyonce or something like that. That would, that would be like those uh, atheist churches I've been to who sing popular songs during their worship, which is, have y'all ever been to that? That's so strange. They'll sing like U2 songs and stuff during their worship. You've never seen that? Actually, Young Life does some of that, not that I'm comparing the two, but um, yeah, that's pretty crazy. Well, this is the same idea, is we take co- common cultural stories and, and insert uh, or be able to take meaning in, in biblical ways. And if you don't know cultural, common cultural stories, uh, there are a lot of them. We have a lot of them. Some of them are old and kind of ancient. We learned them when we were kids. Um, but a lot of them need to just be sort of practically applied into certain narratives that are going around in our day and age uh, and in our own life. And I know that's super challenging. You're thinking, how would I possibly do that? Yen, guys, I'm sorry I can't speak more about that. Go back to the sermon series over the summer. We, uh, we spoke about that in depth. Okay. So I, pr- I pretty much talked about this power of renaissance. But I think one of the questions that, that always is helpful to me is when I look at any area of my life, can I really say that I've struck a pretty good tension of the in the world but, uh, but not of the world? Or am I in the world and of it in this environment? Or, and I think this is probably less likely for many of you, not in it, not of it. Okay. And I think that can be very helpful because I think if we're honest, there's a lot of environments that at, at our best or in and of the world. And striking that, that biblical tension requires us regaining a belief system that really fits in with the biblical narrative and then being able to translate that. If that sounds like hard work, guys, it is hard work. But you do it all the time with cultural narratives. All the time. So it's not like it's foreign to you, the process of doing this. I mean, when you write in, you know, you memes or have funny inside jokes, most of that stuff, guys, is based on cultural narrative and authority. It's not bad. But just figure out how to actually incorporate that in ways that are a little bit more meaningful, okay, than some of the Tim and Eric uh, YouTube uh, videos that I give to some of my friends. Very stupid, very bad. So we've got to figure that out, and I think we've got some really uh, awesome ways to do that. I'm just going to uh, end with this, and then I think we're going to take communion here. I love what uh, uh, Ian Proven says when he says, you know, biblical belief has to bite. I say that over and over again in here, but if you haven't experienced this bite, it's time you do. But biblical belief bites. It doesn't baby us. If you look back to 2 Kings in 22, and actually I'm not going to read that story because we don't have time. You look at Josiah, that bit. And it was the cat bite. It was the waking up, not the terrible your arm just went off. Uh, you know, bite from like a shark. I, I don't know why I need to say that. Um, Josiah found something, it bit, and it changed the whole trajectory of his life and kind of his society, although it was somewhat too late for his society at the time. Okay? And so biblical belief, it really does bite. It doesn't baby us. It, it really does cause us to look at the world and look at the people around us in very, very different ways. So hopefully this has been sufficiently challenging to you, and uh, we're going to spend some more time unpacking some of these more challenging ideas the next two or three weeks as we talk about the Reformation and interpretation more in depth, okay? Um, so it's our time of communion, and, uh, you know, our communion is, is fairly simple. Uh, we, you'll just go and take a piece of bread, dip it in uh, the juice. We have been called loud and ruckus, and the reason for that is because we take this time as a celebration. Uh, and certainly there's a need to celebrate what's been done, okay? And that Jesus loved us as much as he did to be able to live that kind of difficult life that some of what we're talking about now that just kind of makes us cringe, and, and he was able to do that and want to do that for our sakes every day in and day out. But it's also okay for us to celebrate that. But let's not the celebration be just one more time that we celebrate each other only, and our existence and our fun conversations, but that we do figure out in our own individual and communal ways how to celebrate what Jesus has done for us, to truly celebrate a God that comes down and humbles himself before people, which is no God in any other story of God's. Uh, It's so opposite of that behavior, we didn't even recognize him.
And so uh, let's just continue to do that as we have this communion time. I know that's kind of difficult and uh, that's challenging, but I think probably one way that we can do that is, uh, is just talking sometimes during the communion a little bit just about the sermon and asking uh, questions or about the reading. Um, that might be a way that we can focus back on uh, God and, and the things that he does for us in his character. Lord, we thank you for uh, calling us as your ambassadors. Uh, it would be so much easier if we could just put off change and growth until eternity and just kind of go about doing what we do or just checking out completely into our own little communities of faith while rejecting the world around us. But you've called us to neither of those. You've called us to the much more difficult and impossible task of being your ambassadors uh, here on this earth with the primary goal of teaching your character and the good news that you've given us through Jesus. Lord, help us to do that, to wade through uh, the messages that we hear and have heard, to bring them in alignment to the reality of this world under your control, uh, and to be able to speak grace and truth to the people uh, in our lives that we so desperately want to do that to. Uh, help us to take serious uh, biblical authority and its ability to speak to people in timeless ways uh, if your spirit will lead and guide us. Help us to not settle for the self-help and uh, cultural narratives of goodness, uh, but to really teach people uh, what it means to follow a good God, both in our lives and in the words that we speak, Lord. We love you, amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.